sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. One of the many opportunities and responsibilities I have is to serve on the editorial board of what many believe, and I certainly concur, is the nation's oldest and best magazine devoted to religious liberty. Our guest today is our editor, my good friend Bettina Krauss, and we're going to talk about the next issue of Liberty Magazine. Bettina, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Thank you, Alan. Always a pleasure. So I have to say, I was especially excited about this issue and how it came together. And I think I was excited because of, of just how critically important are the issues that it's addressing. But why don't we take them in turn and give our listeners a little highlight of what they have in store if they will go to libertymagazine.org and subscribe or read them online. We certainly want to encourage subscribers. Uh, tell us about some of these articles. Sure. Well, this, of course, is going to be the July-August issue, and we chose as a theme for this issue patriotism, and not just patriotism, but corruptions of patriotism, the unhealthy varieties of patriotism, the, the types of nationalist ideas that fuel instability within our democracy. And so many of the articles are loosely based around that theme. And our cover is by Thomas Kidd. I'm not sure if you've heard of him, but he's um, he's an evangelical scholar from Midwest Theological Seminary, Baptist Theological Seminary. And he does this great in-depth analysis of what exactly should a Christian's relationship with his or her nation be. Because let's face it, we all live in a nation. We can't escape the fact that we belong to a particular geographical area and political system. And so, you know, we have to find a way to reconcile our deeply held religious beliefs with our sense of pride of belonging to this broader society. So Thomas Kidd really delves into this and provides a sort of theological basis, I guess, for the discussion that we have later in the magazine about some of the more current issues that are facing us when it comes to nationalism. You know, um, before we started recording your show, I recorded a show with an old friend of mine who is a pastor and evangelist from Kiev hmm. about really what Christian nationalism looks like in the Russian context as it pertains to the persecution of Christians in the parts of, of eastern Ukraine that the Russians have occupied since 2014. It's not a pretty sight when church and state are, you know, too closely aligned as they've been in Russia for centuries. Uh, you know, it's fascinating, Alan, you know, when people talk about religious nationalism and the harm that it brings to a society, sometimes our minds go directly to Islam. We say countries such as Pakistan or um, those Middle East countries, Arabia, Saudi sure. Arabia. And of course, yes, these are great instances of 
where nationalism and religious nationalism is so harmful. But look at these traditionally Christian countries. Now, you know, you talked about the Orthodox countries. Egypt is also an Orthodox country in the sense that the Coptics are the largest Christian minority there. And the irony there is that, you know, they are a persecuted minority by the Islamic majority, but they in turn act in ways that are discriminatory and persecutory toward other Christian minorities. You know, so this whole idea that there is just one type of religion or one category of religion that um, that is more prone to persecution is a fallacy. I think you're right, Alan. What you need to be aware of is that alliance between any religious um, organization and state power. That's where the dangerous dynamic comes. You know, but it, it strikes me, and I think um, Philip Gorsky's article is in this issue, right? Correct, yes. And, you know, he takes on white Christian nationalism very directly. And the the challenge, I think, for Americans to work through, as he presents it, is if we want religious freedom on the one hand, then it really means a multi-religious, multicultural democracy where the rights of all are respected. But the impetus for, you know, as it were, sort of white working class or middle class fears of people of color, whether it's immigrants or Muslims or gays even, yeah. is is anti-democratic. It's opposed to a multicultural democracy. It's about a Christian nation for white people. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that vision that's fear-based is not compatible with religious freedom. No. It's religious freedom for me, but not for thee. Right, exactly. It's anti-pluralistic. Um, you know, what I found fascinating with um, Philip Gorski and, and Sam Perry, who is his co-author on that book, with their thesis in their very short book, um, is this idea of a deep story that many native-born white Christians tell themselves about their own identity and about their place within America. And it's the story that goes right back to the founding of our nation that says, We've been founded on Christian principles. We are a Christian nation that is prosperous and that is successful and powerful because we have a special compact with God. We are, in a way, a modern-day promised land. But this um, prosperity, this God-given prosperity, is now under threat by all those categories that you just identified, Alan. You know, anyone who is in some way perceived as violating this sort of moral code that America is founded on. And so this deep story, which many people are just simply unconscious of holding, this deep story is fueling the attitudes towards a society which is growing increasingly less white, less Christian, and far more diverse, far more pluralistic. You know, I've never made this connection before, but it strikes me at the very end of the last book of the Bible, there's a, a warning, a curse to anyone that adds, anyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. There's a curse hmm. pronounced on those who, you know, supplement the Bible, right? And 
you know, when I'm listening to you describe this kind of belief that is so deeply entrenched about America in covenant with God, well, obviously, there's nothing in Scripture that says that there's a covenant. You know, there were obviously, you know, a couple of dozen people on a boat, you know, 400 years ago that said, you know, we covenant with you, God, but there wasn't an America then. And how did their personal commitment to God somehow get transformed into, you know, an extra biblical covenant? (laughs) This whole thing is really, if you just unpack it logically, but, you know, look, Myth and logic are in completely different realms, aren't they? (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And, you know, as you've been talking, Alan, it reminded me of something that Dr. Gorski uh, explained when I interviewed him for Liberty Magazine about the fact that when you say white Christian nationalism, in many instances, not all, but in many, the Christian part of that description is actually a social identifier rather than a religious identifier. They did a lot of research, data-driven research for this book where they surveyed Americans who held these white Christian nationalist views. And in unpacking that, they uncovered that the people who hold these views are not necessarily religious. They identify as Christian, but what they're identifying more with is not a set of faith-based values or ideas or beliefs, but more a social identity and understanding that this is our way of life. So Christian becomes stripped of its religious content and becomes instead a a sociological (laughs) phenomenon, which I found fascinating. Yeah, it is. And we could certainly talk a lot more about that. I hope we're piquing the interest of our listeners and actually reading some of these articles, reading the magazine, even subscribing. But there's more in the magazine. Switching topics, uh, I think there's a piece about a California law that compels physicians to uh, participate in assisting suicide. Right. And, you know, I can hear the the incredulity in your voice, Ellen, and I felt exactly the same way when I read about this lawsuit because it seems outrageous that um, in such a momentous decision to of someone to end their own life because of a terminal illness and involvement of the medical establishment, that there should not be some kind of conscience-driven out for the medical professional who is, you know, asked to participate. I mean, in something like this, this would seem just a natural that you would have a conscientious way of extracting yourself from that situation. But the California law was first passed in 2015, and it did have those provisions that protected people who had either a religious or moral objection to participating in physician-assisted suicide, but it was amended late last year. And those amendments late last year both shortened the time period between the patient requesting um, assisted suicide and the provision of it, and it also removed this protection for people in the medical profession who may object to participating. So I'm going to make a connection here with another one of the articles because our good friend James Standish wrote a brilliant plea for people who are more moderate 
in both parties to reassert more control in their respective political parties because we're so divided and the divisions are tearing our country apart. We need to have more people, you know, to pull towards the center. And, you know, when I see a law like this California law, you have, you know, a left coast, deep blue state like California, you know, the left just pushing the envelope beyond reason or belief, which happens from time to time, and no doubt causing a sharp reaction from the right. You know, I've often said that the far left and the far right are in a sick symbiotic relationship. They need each other to thrive. They need the other one to beat up on and to say, look how stupid and, and outrageous they are. And, you know, to some extent, it's true. Both sides really are stupid and outrageous <laughs> or whatever other insults you want to call them. But uh, it's just this kind of polarization has got to stop, doesn't it? It does. As James points out in his article, the vast majority of Americans, when they're asked directly, they will identify themselves as independents or part of that center majority of people. 44% of Americans will say that they're actually independent. They don't belong to those extremes. But when you look at the candidates that are being fielded by the different political parties, that does not reflect the reality of where most Americans are. They, what is reflected is these extremes. And just on a side note on that, Alan, there was research recently that said that for the first time ever, the love of one's own party was being superseded by one's hate for the political opposition. Oh, so, my. <laughs> so out-party hate rather than in-party love. So, you know, this is... On that note, I'm going to cut you off. We're out of time. We've been talking about the current issue of Liberty Magazine. Please look it up online, libertymagazine.org. Please subscribe. We need all the help we can get in promoting religious liberty. Our guest today has been editor Bettina Krauss. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring.